Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, Pillar Church. If I hadn't a chance to meet you yet, my name is Trace, one of the pastors here, and welcome to Big Sunday. So, Big Sunday, as you look around, we have all of the young ones in here with us, and starting this month, we have a full family service, so there's no children at all in the back. Everyone's in here. And so, we welcome you all, little ones, even those that can't understand me. I'm glad you're in the room with us. Uh, it's an important aspect of of figuring out how to grow up in the church is actually being a part of the church. They're not just uh, you know, back there and doing their own thing. Occasionally we will be here together, and this is this is that morning, and so welcome all of you. Unfortunately, um, I didn't bring the treasure box this morning. So my, my wife is on a sabbatical. She's on a month-long hiatus from serving at Pillar. Um, she's the communications director and... and, and, um, and more. And more. <laughs> For the last eight years or so, and so a lot of responsibility falls on me, and the one thing that I did forget this morning was the treasure box for all you little ones. So I, I make you a deal, if you take notes and you show me, I promise you I will bring the treasure box next week, and you can get two things instead of just one. Okay, two for one, but you got to take notes, and you got to show me, and then, yeah, you got to be uh, in the, in the treehouse, I'm sorry, um, in the treehouse. You do not qualify, although if you take notes and show me, then I'll give you a high five. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let me think here, uh, the year is 1995, January 24th, 1995, Los Angeles, California, one of the largest, most famous trials begins. Um, anybody know what, what trial that was? O.J. Simpson. O, okay, how many knew that was O.J. Simpson? Raise your hand real high, because this is going to determine how many details I get into. Okay, so like half of you, the rest of you are like, who's O.J. Simpson? <laughs> That's a good question. He's in all the Police Academy movies, right? He's a funny actor. Actually, way before that, he was a fantastic football player. Um, Heisman Trophy winner, right? At USC, is that where he played? Some, I don't know. Something, something like that. Yeah, the juice. Yeah. Really famous football player. Anyway, uh, January 24th, 1995, is when his murder trial began because he was accused of, of taking the life of his ex-wife, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, uh, what was his name? Ron something. Ron Zimmerman? Nope, not Ron Swanson. Nope. Ron Goldman. There you go. Ron Goldman. Lots of famous names. Johnny Cochran, Marsha Clark, Lance, Lance Ito. Um, yeah, all of the names in between. So this trial lasted nine months. Nine months. Could you imagine being a part of a trial for nine months? Televised, everybody was like, Totally enthralled with this thing, right? And it was like split 50-50. Yeah, he's innocent. Yeah, he's guilty. Like, you just, it was a, a weird time. So, over the course of the trial, many, many people were brought onto the stand to give witness and testimony to build a case either for or against, you know, the, the, the conviction. One particular star witness, if we'll call him that, an expert witness, um, was the forensics specialist with the LAPD. And so this guy was on the stand for nine days. One dude, nine days. And he was a, a, a witness for the prosecution. They were trying to prove that this guy knew what he was doing. He was an expert and everything was taken care of. No foul play, no nothing. The evidence was the evidence. He collected it and it would certainly lead to a conviction. Well, this guy gets on the stand and the defense 
starts picking him apart. Nine days, I mean, of course there's going to be some holes in nine days. But it turns out there was some uh, procedures that weren't followed. He didn't always use gloves to, to collect evidence. He purposely uh, didn't collect certain blood samples and then went back two weeks later and collected them. All kinds of things that were just pouring this guy's uh, testimony, pulling it apart. And so when the, when the verdict came in nine months later, October 3rd, I think it was 1995, he was exonerated. Right? He was, he was found not guilty, O.J. Simpson was, of this horrendous crime. And a lot of people say one of the main reasons why is because of this witness's testimony that did not support the evidence to convict O.J. Simpson. You guys remember that time? It was an interesting time. You were in 10th grade? Evidently, unrelated to any of this, in that time period from January to October 1995, young Trace quit going to college because he was terrible at it, enlisted in the Marine Corps, spent a summer in Denmark, and then went off to boot camp all in that nine months, all while following very closely the O.J. Simpson trial. It was a huge deal, especially here in Southern California, like everybody. Me and my friends, we went like to Brentwood and we're trying to get close to his house. We were dumb, but um, <clears throat> we had better things to do than go to college. Um, so, why do I tell you all that stuff? What does that have to do with anything? Well, today's text, as we begin to close 1 John, has to do with a strong and powerful testimony supporting a very important fact. So let's go to the Word of God. Go to 1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can open it up, and I'll read to you. And hopefully, shortly after reading it, you'll be able to see why I opened with the thing that I opened with. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, and this is what the Word of God says. 1 John 5, starting in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and all these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. All right, so that's our text. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Oh, gracious God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for all those that are here today. Thank you for the young ones gathering with us. Lord, thank you that um, they can also uh, be sensitive and hear from, from you um, in a way that makes sense to them, God, and you begin to shape their lives, Lord. I pray that this morning the truth of your word does penetrate all of our hearts, that we are able to discern, Father God, truth and apply it to our lives. So help us in that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, if you want to, you can text questions to that number on the screen. Uh, Mark and I will come up here at the end of the service and we'll try to answer those questions for you. Also, if you just need to get a break, either, even if you don't have kids, you're just like, I need to get out of this room. There's some chairs over here and some little heaters out there. So feel free at any time. Get up and go out there. And just uh, There's a speaker out there. You can hear what's going on. But Jerry, you don't have to go right now, man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
So the best way to walk through this text, I think, that we just um, read through is, is to pull some examples from my opening illustration. So let's put ourselves into the court setting then, shall we? Um, the charges being levied against Jesus are that he is not the Messiah. At least not the way that the apostles were teaching it. If you remember back in 1 John chapter 2, uh, he was warning, John was warning the Christians in that time that there are people that are coming that are teaching you things that are not true. They're trying to pervert the gospel in some way. Don't listen to them. And he called them as having the spirit of Antichrist. You remember that? Uh, Mike preached on that a while back. So the charge then is that Jesus is not the Christ. Makes sense, right? Thinking about a court of law. That's the charge. The prosecution is the one that's making that point. They're saying, no, he's not. And the defense then is left to make the case that Jesus is the Christ. He is and always has been the Son of God. And in a court of law, when the defense is building their case, who do they put on the stand in order to build their case? Witnesses, expert witnesses in some case. And what do witnesses offer to defense in order to help this process? A testimony. There we go. Now you can see how it's all drawing together, right? So here we are in 1 John chapter 5. In the beginning of my heading, it says, The testimony concerning the Son of God. I mean, that's kind of why I chose this example. John offers in defense of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God three witnesses, three testimonies, if you will, that are going to prove his point. And as we read through that text, share with me now what are the three Water, blood, spirit. There we go. You're paying attention. Good. Let's take them one at a time. The water. He says, this is he who came by water. Now, there are varying degrees of understanding of what this means, but I think it becomes very clear what John is talking about when you look at the context and the argument he's trying to make. He's talking about the baptism, right? The baptism of Jesus. So in order to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the Christ, he offers the testimony of water. In other words, the baptism of Jesus. So why is this significant? Why does this matter? Why is this going to be like a really strong point of argument in that? Well, let's go to the actual account that this is bearing witness to so we can pull it straight from the example. So go with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You can turn your Bible or be on the screen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what stands out to you in that regard as strong evidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, God said it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big part of it, right? So here's Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear to me. And it's not that he says, Now you have become my Son. He says, You are my Son. In other words, you've always been my Son. Because there were some people that are arguing at that time that the deity of Christ being God only started at his baptism and ended at his crucifixion. That's what they were arguing against. So he's saying, no, no, no. You are my son of God. You've always been my son. So I think witness one makes a very strong case for this argument. 
All right, what's the next witness? The blood. Okay, what event, what event do you think this signifies? Crucifixion, right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a ton of scriptures that tell us the significance of the crucifixion, what it means for us, how Jesus suffered and died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, right? How he made a way for us to be reconciled back to the Father. We know all the texts and scriptures about what it signifies, but what is this event itself doing to help prove the point that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, let's jump to that account so we can see clearly. Go back to Matthew now. We're in chapter 27, and we're going to look at this account. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. This is, that is rather, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is crying and calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And here begins some evidence. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what it took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So what stands out in your mind as evidence that the crucifixion, this blood, signifies the Son of God. But what the centurion said, but what did he observe that caused him to say, this has got to be the Son of God. There's a huge earthquake. It's dark, utter darkness in the middle of the day. That's from noon to 3 p.m. Darkness, just out of nowhere, it's dark. Then we have this massive earthquake. Graves are being opened up. People are coming back to life. The temple curtain that separates the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is, torn, split, significant in that now we no longer need the, the priests to go in on our behalf. We have access to the presence of God, the, the presence of God. That's what the curtain being split represents. Massive things happening here at the crucifixion. And then the centurion, whose only job is it to watch over Jesus and make sure nothing crazy happens, he puts all this together, and what does he say? Man, this is, this is truly the Son of God. Man, I think that's just more compelling evidence for the case that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. So not only by the water, but also the blood and the water. The water of the baptism of Jesus, where, where he is declared the Son of God, he's commissioned for the work ahead, and then the blood of the crucifixion, his death, where his work is now complete. It's finished. And then, the end of verse 6, we have the Spirit who testifies. Capital S on the Spirit, what does that mean? What does that represent then? It's the Holy Spirit, right? It's not just some random spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. John here says that the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. 
The Spirit is truth. So where's John drawing his information from, I wonder, about this Spirit? Well, a couple of places, but one is his gospel account, his own gospel account. Go over to John 16, 13. Let's see what John has to say about the Spirit and truth and these kinds of things. So Jesus, this is Jesus talking now. He says, when the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So right here, John records Jesus' words, designating that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who guides us into all truth, and who does not speak on his own authority, but on whose behalf? Yeah, the Father, right? He's speaking on his behalf. In other words... This is what qualifies the Holy Spirit to testify with such authority. As the one scholar Westcott states, he says, It's either that the Spirit is essentially fitted to bear witness, or that he is constrained to do so. In, in other words, he, he, he can't help but do it. He is truth, so he must. He's required to bear witness to the truth. And I think more than that, regarding John's point, that the Holy Spirit actually is involved in revealing Jesus as Lord. Do you know of any scriptures, and this is maybe one that is not going to pop into your mind, but do you know of any scriptures out there that talk about the role, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus as Lord? Anything come to mind? The Holy Spirit declares Jesus is Lord. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and see what that has to say for us. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The knowledge of Jesus as Lord comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Uh, if you're a believer... If you've repented and believed, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Many times in this very letter, John has tried to show us the Holy Spirit resides in you. Paul talks about it in Corinthians also. He says, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So not only does the Spirit dwell in us, but our acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ comes through the Spirit's presence in us. It reveals, it opens up our eyes to see that. Now, if you want to double check my work, you can go back and look at 1 John 2.20, 1 John 2.27, and 1 John 4.1-6. And so the Holy Spirit testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Christ in us. And so these three witnesses, the three testimonies, agree. In fact, I should have started out by telling you the name of my sermon. I didn't, I didn't tell you that, did I? The name of the sermon is, These Three Agree, Jesus is He. I know, it's fancy. <clears throat> but we have historical references to specific events, and then there are experiential events that involve the Holy Spirit, with all three coming together in agreement and overwhelming, I would say, the judge and the jury, to prove the point that Jesus is a Christ. And then John goes on to make a comparison to our rules and guidelines that help us discern fact from fiction. So under the Levitical law, way back Old Testament time, 
Anytime somebody brought a charge to somebody else, in order to validate that charge, you had to bring something with you. Three witnesses. Otherwise, it didn't happen. That's the reality of this. And John is simply saying, hey, look, if we take into account human testimony, how are we not going to take into account God's testimony? It's a pretty, pretty strong point, I think. But in verse 10, I think we're going to call this the culmination of what's been happening here. The purpose of this testimony that John is telling for us is to bring about faith in Christ. It's not just to prove a point or prove a fact that something happened. That's part of it, but the result is faith in Christ. That's why he's building this strong testimony. And John Stott agrees when he says this. He says, receiving the testimony leads naturally to believing in the one to whom the testimony is born. In other words, to accept this testimony of God is to believe in the Son of God. They're intertwined. It's interesting, though. <clears throat> what is the object of our confidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Is it the Son, or is it God's testimony of the Son? Well, let's look at the end of verse 10. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Why? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Why doesn't he have it? Because he doesn't believe the testimony of God about Jesus. Does our faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross come into account and come into um, play on this? Absolutely. What Jesus did on the cross, we have to have faith in that as well. But it's not a blind faith on some obscure truth or set of rules. It's rooted in the triune God. That is, right, the Trinity, all three working together. It's the testimony of God the Father that he gave, verified by the Holy Spirit, carried out through Jesus Christ. Right? So not only do the three, the water, the blood, and the spirit, work together to bring a powerful testimony, we see here the Trinity working together to also bring this truth to light. And now John closes with a direct rendering of the testimony itself. Right? He's, he's trying to build this idea in this case that this is an important thing, it's from God, it's believable, it's truth, and then he goes, well, this is the testimony, let's look at it. And this is the testimony. <laughs> That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And thankfully, in John fashion, he just lays it out there. Like There's, there's no question about what he's saying. You either got it, or you don't got it. The testimony that Jesus is the Son of God results in eternal life, right? For those who believe in and have the Son. And I think there are three takeaways for us in these closing verses. Number one, this is a gift. It's not something that we can earn, right? God gave us eternal life. We do nothing to earn it. We bring nothing to the table. If we think there's something we bring to the table, then we say that what Jesus accomplished is not enough. I have to do something to add to it, and that's just not the case. It's free, and it's an available to anybody that will repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
The second thing that we glean from this is that we have been given this based in Christ. And this life is in his son. Jesus facilitates this eternal life. Nothing earth-shattering there. That should not be news to anybody. But it's important and a necessary reminder that the hope that we have is our faith in Christ. It's like the song that we sing here often. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Nothing else. So as you walk through this with me and as you consider this, I ask the simple question, well, so what? So what? What does it mean for us? And I think as we grow more confident of who Jesus is and see ourselves as his people, we become more confident about his call on our lives. I pray that we're just not after the stamp in our eternal passport to gain access to heaven. Oh, I checked that heaven box. I believed, and so now I'm good. I can just sit back and wait for Jesus to come back. No. Not at all. There's a promise that we have. Absolutely. Eternal life, that's what we just read. You got it. But that's for then. What about now? What does that look like today? How does being assured that Jesus is the Messiah help us function as a follower of Jesus Christ on the earth today? And that's the third takeaway for us. This gift of eternal life, while it does certainly promise the life to come, it's a present possession. He said whoever has the Son has life. You have it now. As believers, we are in possession of that eternal life. You see, eternity with Christ began the moment you repented and believed in the gospel. In other words, for all who presently believe in Christ, there is eternal life to be presently enjoyed. You ever think about eternal life as something you can enjoy right now? That's that's something we often talk about, is it? We just think, oh, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to see what it's going to be like. It's going to be an amazing thing. But... This is the kind of truth that we have hope in the eternal life that should just rock our world, that should motivate us and encourage us, should awaken our hearts and mind every single day. This is what we have to look forward to. It should course through our veins, right, and drive you to get out of the bed in the morning and go, I need to follow with more passion and with more courage. The world that is broken and falling apart around us, it is not ours. It does not define who we are or have our hope in it. We're untethered from this world. We have our eyes fixed on Jesus and the life to come, which is, in a word, it's inexpressible what we're looking forward to. But what we have to look forward to in the life to come should, man, it should thrill us. It should move us in ways that nothing else in this world can. I think that's how these verses and these truths, they, they impact us today. They should compel us to action. So how can you, today, as you richly enjoy the thought of eternal life, because we should, we should be thinking about that, 
But how, as we enjoy the thought and the notion of that, how do we leverage that reality of our future for your good and for God's glory today? Does it excite you? Eternity with Christ? I know my, my wife often shares sometimes when she was growing up in the church, older ladies in the church would go, oh, I just can't wait to like, be home with Jesus. And she's like, no, I'm young. I got lots, uh, you know, I, I got life to live. And then the older you get and the further along you get in life, you're like, Lord, this, this world is awful. <laughs> like, it's broken, man. Yeah, there's wonderful things to enjoy here. Don't get me wrong. But what our hope is in and what we have to, man, Lord Jesus, come, like, Take me away now, please, because what is to come pales into comparison with what we have right now. But that should do something in us, right? The confidence of knowing that that is secure and what we have to look forward to should also, though, break our hearts for the people around us who don't have that confidence, who don't have that assurance, who all they have is this world, with its empty promises and hopelessness. That's a shame, right? It's a shame. So as, as I close this morning, I just want you to consider how does the knowledge of the fact that we are guaranteed that Jesus is the Christ and in that, if we have repented and believed, we have eternal life, how does that compel us to move today? Take action today. That's my prayer for all of us as we walk through this text. We're coming to the close of this passage. In fact, Mark is going to close us next week. The end of the letter is, is coming. <laughs> the light is, is bright. Um, but I would just encourage you to spend some time this week praying. Lord, thank you that I have eternal life. What does that mean for me? Not in the life to come, but right now also. Would you commit to praying for that this week? All right, well, let's pray now. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your, your word. Your word is truth. Your word is hope. Your word is, your word is life. And as we looked at it today, we see God, there's just so much evidence, overwhelming evidence that you are Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who, who took on flesh, who came to this earth, who lived a life free from sin, and who freely gave up your life on the cross, who died in our place, that our sins might be forgiven, that the punishment and wrath that we deserved was poured out on Christ in our place, and in that we have access to our Heavenly Father. We've been reconciled back to Him. And through that we have hope in eternal life with you, Jesus. But we want to know, Lord, what does that mean for us now in this life we're not just idly waiting for the day that you're going to sweep in and take us away. We shouldn't be doing that, Lord. We should be stirred by the idea of eternity with you and motivated to pursue the things of you on this earth now while we have the chance. Because when we close our eyes and we take our last breath on this earth, our opportunities to be your light here end. And God, we want to stand before you and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So as we pray this week, and as we genuinely pursue you and understanding of what that means for us, God, would you show us tangible ways 
in which we can grow in our obedience to you and to your word and being faithful to the very end. Lord, I thank you for each one here this morning. I praise you and honor you. And I ask all this in your name, Christ. Amen.